right. Thank you, Barry. All right. If you haven't already opened up your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, you can be doing that. Oh, man. Karen and I took the dog on a walk this morning and enjoyed the cool morning. Wow. Um, Because it got a little warm this past week in the bluegrass. You know, one of the reasons uh, that Karen and I moved up north to Kentucky was to get away from the heat and humidity of the deep south. Um, But this past week reminded us of a Georgia summer. It it was hot. Um, And on Wednesday, the AC here at the building in in just the the church offices went out. Um, Now, often I will um, stay at the building until Bible class on Wednesday nights, but not this week. I made it until about 2 o'clock, and uh, the temperature in the office had risen to 83 degrees, and I was wearing jeans, and so I just made the call to spend the rest of the day working at home. Now, if you've never seen my office, I have a lot of stuff in my, uh, on my walls, and I have memorabilia on my shelves, and one of my prized possessions is a can of Coke. Now, it's not just any can of Coke. It's a commemorative can celebrating the 1991 Atlanta Braves baseball season. Well, it got so hot in my office on Wednesday that my 32-year-old can of Coke exploded. That's amazing. Exploded, and Coke went all over uh, the wall of my office. Um, it was really quite amazing, really. I mean, I, I was amazed at that and just wondered how Coke cans made it like around in delivery trucks. Uh, but this one exploded. Um, and I realized that in Lexington, there are more Reds fans than there are Braves fans. So just in case you don't know why I would have kept this can for 32 years, I'm going to tell you. It was a special season. Uh, And for Braves fans, even though we've won two World Series since this season, what was uh, special about this one is that this was the season that we went from worst to first. We had finished in last place year after year after year, been mediocre for years, but in 1991, After having been the worst team in the NL West the year before, we ended up winning the pennant on the final day of the regular season. Now, interestingly, this is only for baseball buffs. Interestingly, the Minnesota Twins also went from worst to first that same exact year. So it's it's this incredible coincidence. 1991, worst to first in the NL Worst the first in the AL, and the Twins beat the Braves in Game 7 of the World Series, one to nothing, in what ESPN has called the greatest World Series of all time. Um, But that was my freshman year in college, and that's why I've kept this can. And uh, I no longer have the Coke that was in this can. (laughs) 
But, you know, I can still, I can still have that up on my shelf. Um, I share that with you because it was the worst to first year. That's pretty remarkable, right? I don't know if you've ever been a part of a turnaround like that. But it's a remarkable change. It's quite a turnaround. Let me put it this way. It's, it's, I think it's an extremely significant transition to go from being a nobody to being in the cellar to becoming a somebody. What do you do now that you're a somebody? You've never been in this position before. Well, if you get that, and if you see the significance of this transition this morning, then I think you'll begin to understand a little bit better the context culturally that's happening here in Acts chapter 15. You see, for centuries, the people of God had consisted only of the Jews. That was it. But not anymore. God is doing something brand new. We learned in Acts chapter 10, through the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius, that the people of God include the Gentiles. The Gentiles had gone from being nobodies to now becoming somebodies. The Apostle Peter would describe the transition in this way in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10. He wrote, at one time, you, the Gentiles, were not a people. But now, you, the Gentiles, are the people of God. At one time, you, the Gentiles, had not received mercy. But now, you, the Gentiles, have received mercy. I tell you what, it sure sounds like a worst-to-first kind of a story. The Gentiles went from being no one, from not being a people, to now becoming the people of God. So now what? What do you do now that you're a somebody? In a very real sense, that's what this trial is all about here at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Now that the Gentiles are a somebody, now that they're the people of God, what are they supposed to look like? Well, there was this group of Christian Pharisees, Luke tells us. They were believers in Jesus, but they were also Jewish Pharisees. They said that the Gentiles had to look just like them, meaning the Gentiles had to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. They had to be circumcised. They had to be required to obey all the law of Moses in order to follow Jesus. And as you can imagine, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so they travel to Jerusalem together. They gather with the apostles and the elders to discuss this question. Do the Gentiles have to become like the Jews in order to be people of God? 
Paul and Barnabas share, the Christian Pharisees defend their position. There's lots of discussion. Then Peter speaks up, and we looked at Peter's speech two weeks ago. And if you missed that one, I encourage you to go back and listen to it, because Peter answers this question with a resounding no and gives four great reasons as to why the Gentiles do not have to become like the Jews in order to be the people of God. Now, following Peter's speech, Paul and Barnabas share again, and then in verse 13, after they finish, James speaks up, and that's where we find ourselves today. Now, who is this James? I think that's a good question to ask because in the New Testament, there's a lot of James, and it's easy to get confused. Well, we know that there were two apostles named James, and this James is not either one of them. This James was the brother of Jesus. He has a book in the New Testament with his name. It's located right after Hebrews. And at this time, he was recognized as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He would have been the guy for this group of Christian Pharisees. They would listen to him, whatever he had to say. He was their guy, and he was the moderator for this council. And his speech begins in verse 13 Let's read the first two sentences, first two verses of his speech here, verses 13 and 14. Brothers, James said, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself, a people literally for his name, is that phrase. Now, this would have been a startling use of this phrase. This would have been shocking to hear out of the mouth of James, to kind of put yourself back around the people listening to these words first being spoken. This would have shocked the audience. Because up until this moment, this phrase, a people for his name, had only ever been used to refer to the Jews. In fact, just the word translated here as people, not, just, not even people for his name, but just the word translated as people was only used when talking about the Jews. There was another more generic word for people used when talking about the Gentiles. Every other instance in the book of Acts, when this word for people is used, it's used to refer to the Jews until James. Till James. James uses this special word here and this special phrase to describe how God has taken a people for his name from the Gentiles. So just the the use of this phrase gets everyone's attention. And then James backs up his statement by showing how the prophets are in agreement with it. James hasn't lost his mind. He hasn't gone off his rocker. Scripture backs him up. 
He quotes from Amos chapter 9 here, but he could, have, he could have quoted from many of the Old Testament prophets. He could have quoted from Zechariah, Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah. But here he quotes from Amos. The, the words of the prophets are in agreement. Not only has God taken from the Gentiles a people for his name, but the prophets of God had all prophesied about it happening centuries ago. It is a remarkable worst-to-first story. The nobodies have now become somebodies, and everyone involved is having to figure out this new living situation. So, in verses 19 through 21, James makes a proposal to the council. How are we going to live together now that the Gentiles have gone from worst to first. Now that the Gentiles, the nobodies, have become somebodies, how is this going to work? James makes a proposal to the council, and here's what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning. I want to read his proposal again and then try to make some sense of it. All right, that's the plan. So verses 19 through 21, let's read James' proposal again. He says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. There you go. Clear as mud. Now, that's the proposal. That's, that's the judgment of James that's delivered down at this council and then is followed up with a letter that's sent out with Paul and Barnabas. Now, as we take a look at this and kind of break it down and try to understand what is being said, it's easy, I think, to kind of wrap our heads around the first part. It's easy to understand verse 19. James recommends that they not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I love that statement. So, in other words, he's agreeing with Peter. The Gentiles do not have to be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses in order to turn to God. I get that part. And I I appreciate the principle behind it. And I actually, I I think the principle behind it should be applied to us today. I think we need to hear this first part of the proposal from James today. I think a good question to ask ourselves as the church is to ask, are there any ways that we might be making it difficult for people to turn and follow Jesus? That's a good question. I don't know that we are. But I think it's a good question. 
And may may the Lord give us wisdom. May the Lord show us, reveal to us if there are any ways because we want to heed this proposal. We want to heed this recommendation of James today. We do not want to make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Does that make sense? Again, I'm not saying that we're doing something to make it difficult. I'm just sharing my heart. I don't ever want us to be a people who put down roadblocks or set up obstacles. Instead, I want us to be clearing the pathway and pointing people to Jesus Christ. Well, these Christian Pharisees wanted to add religion. They wanted to add requirements. They wanted to add rules. And the first part of James' proposal says, no, we are not going to do that. We're not going to make it difficult for these Gentiles who are turning to God. We got it. That's the first part. But then, what about the second part of the proposal? Verses 20 through 21. What's this all about? First, let me tell you what it's not about. I think that's a good place to start. I do not think that it's a compromise with this group of Christian Pharisees. I don't think that's what's happening here. No way. Knowing Paul from his writings the way we do, I just don't think he would have walked away from this council with a compromise on this issue. So here is what James is not saying. He's not saying on one hand that the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised or required to obey the law of Moses, but on the other hand, as a way of compromise, they're required to obey these four commands of the law of Moses. That doesn't make any sense. He's not trying to find middle ground here. And I don't think James is just turning this into a semantics issue. He's not saying that it's no longer a requirement to obey the law, but it's now a strong recommendation to obey at least these four parts of the law. And I don't think James is trading one requirement for the other. He's not saying, we'll give you Gentile circumcision, but you give us food polluted by idols. If it were a trade like that, how would someone even begin to go about picking and choosing? So I don't think that's what James is saying, but but what is he saying? Well, I do think this. I, I, I do think in some ways James is saying that just as the Jewish Christians are not to make it difficult for the Gentiles turning to God, These new Gentile Christians are not to make it difficult for the Jews turning to Jesus. Does that make sense? I do think in one sense, this is a missional statement. James says that Moses is still being preached and read in the synagogues. And for the Jews who have not yet turned to Jesus, who have not yet become Christians... 
these new Gentile Christians should be culturally sensitive and not make it difficult for the Jews to turn to Jesus. The Jewish Christians are not going to make it difficult for the Gentiles to come to God. And these new Gentile Christians, be culturally sensitive and don't make it difficult for the Jews to come to Jesus. I do think that's part of it. Therefore, it's a missional statement. But the bigger issue here that I want to talk about has to do with idolatry. That's the bigger issue. You know, this language of food polluted by idols and the meat of strangled animals and blood It's just really weird, right? You know, idolatry uh, in general just seems culturally irrelevant to us today. We don't carve idols and worship them. So what's this all about? What's what's he talking about? Well, first let me tell you a quick story. I, uh, I got a call last Sunday afternoon. And it was from my niece. So my niece is a sophomore over here at UK. And uh, she called me last Sunday afternoon, and she was with her three roommates, and they were out on town running errands, um, and their car broke down. And you all already know how well I do with cars. And uh, so it just happened. It just so happened that none of the four girls had any parents who lived here and I was the closest kin, and so Sarah Kate, my niece, called me and said, will you come look at our car? So they were just right down the road here in the Kroger parking lot, right there in front of Marty and Liz. And so I got in the car and headed there. So, you know, there's a couple things I know to do. A couple, there's another, there's a new thing I know to look for, too, as you found out <laughs> a couple weeks ago. But um, so I get there, and uh, it's pretty simple. The battery's just dead right? The car won't start. So I've got my jumper cables and take my jumper cables out. And, you know, I, I, I know nothing about cars, but to these girls, I, I mean, I was Joe mechanic. They, I was, it was unbelievable. They were just watching my every move. None of them had ever jumped a battery before. They're like, wow, the color coded cables and, you know, positive, negative. They were just really getting into it. And so, uh, we get, you know, get everything connected and get my car turned on. And so the, the, the girl whose car it was, she goes, now what, are, what's, now, what are we doing here? What's going on? And this shows you how much I know. I said, well, so here's what we're doing. What's happening is I'm taking some of the juice from my car and I'm putting it into your car. <laughs> That's all I got. That's my best description. And so, here we go. We let it go. It runs. Okay, take all the cables off. We start her car. Starts right up. She's so excited. And so, I'm catching up a little bit with Sarah Kate, and I hear this girl talking to her mom on the phone as I talk to Sarah Kate, and I hear her say, good news, my car's running. And then, I'm just assuming, I can't hear her mom on the other end, but I'm assuming she says something to the fact of like, well, what happened? And here's what she says. She said, Sarah Kate's uncle gave me some juice. <laughs> he, gave, he gave me some juice. I, 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 if I'm the parent on the other end, I'm like, is it orange juice? <laughs> Grape juice? 
I just love that. I love just the language because that's how I feel talking about idolatry in the New Testament. We kind of get it, but not really. It's language that doesn't really relate to us, and so we talk about it when we come across it in the New Testament, but we really don't know what we're saying. And yet, here's what I think James is saying. Let's read how the second part of this proposal reads in the letter that he sends out in verses 28 and 29. Let's read this uh, in 28 and 29. It says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Now, requirements is an okay translation at the end of verse 28. But remember, James is not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He's not saying you're no longer required to obey the law of Moses, but you're now required to obey these commands. As I've studied this, requirements is not what this word literally means. That's how it was chosen to be translated. But here's what this word literally means. It literally means essentials. It means essentials. So James is saying to the Gentile Christians, we're not going to burden you with any extra requirements, but I do want you to know the essentials. You know, when Karen and I go away for a weekend or go go, uh, down for a night or two to visit one of our kids in college, we try to pack our things into this one little suitcase. It's just what we do. And when you attempt to do that, you cannot take anything extra. You can only pack the essentials. And that's what James is doing here. He says, okay, we're not adding anything extra. No circumcision, no obedience to the law of Moses. Just want to make sure you pack the essentials. And here's the essentials, as Paul would state in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Flee from idolatry. Run from it. Turn the other way. Stay away. You see, this is not adding to faith. This is defining faith. Which, if you know that it's James speaking these words, is what James does all in his epistle. James doesn't add to faith. James defines faith for us. And that's what he's he's doing here. He says, when you turn to God, you must turn away from idolatry. See, just like faith and the law do not mix, faith and idolatry do not mix. You see, all four of these have to do with turning away from idolatry. Ben Witherington Uh, is a professor at Asbury, and he puts it this way. I love what he says. He writes, these clauses here in verse uh, 29, and then in verse 20 and verse 29, these clauses here, they have more to do with venue than they do menu. More to do with venue than they do menu. All of them refer or allude to the activities that take place in pagan temples. They have to do with temple worship, they have to do with temple feasts, and they even have to do with temple prostitution, all of which 
were common practices with the Gentiles, idolatry. You see, turning away from idolatry is essential to turning to God. The Gentiles have turned to the living God, and James is encouraging them to turn from idolatry. It's not an added requirement. No, it's essential to the whole thing. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus says the entire law can be summed up with this one essential command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. With all is the key. You see, when you turn to God, it's either with all or it's nothing. In Luke 14, Jesus says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So the proposal was not to add any requirements to the Gentiles turning to God. It was to encourage them with the essentials. Turning to God is turning away from idolatry. They're not adding requirements, but they're encouraging, they're laying down the essentials. Turning to God It's turning away from idolatry. Well, what's that mean for us? That's where I want to conclude. What's that mean for us today? That sounds good. Okay, I I like that. I I, I get that. We don't want to add requirements. We don't want to make it difficult for people who are turning to God. We want to remember the essentials here, that turning to God, what that means. We want to define faith. It's turning away from idolatry. But what's the application for us today that no longer carve little images and worship them? That don't meet down in the pagan temples. I want to share a quote with you. This is awesome. This is so good. This is from David Garland. It's in his commentary on Acts. He says, The idea of bowing down to a carved statue seems ridiculous to the modern person. However, idols are not limited to graven images. Listen to this. But to any person, possession, purpose, or pursuit that takes precedence and priority over Jesus Christ in your life. Let me repeat that. Idols are not limited to graven images. But to any person, possession, purpose, or pursuit that takes precedence and priority over Jesus Christ in your life. Listen, how many of us give more of ourselves, more of our minds, more of our resources, more of our time, more of our attention, more of our heart to something else other than him. 
You see, just like faith and the law do not mix, faith and idolatry do not mix. Faith in Jesus as the Christ, as the King, which we've sung about this morning, requires our full allegiance to Him alone. We love God with all, or we love God with nothing. So this morning, allow me to ask you a question. Allow me to ask us a question. It's a great question that I believe James would say is essential to our relationship with God. Is there a person, a possession, a purpose, or a pursuit in your life that takes precedence and priority over your allegiance to Jesus Christ? You don't have to answer that this morning. I want you to sit with that question. I want you to think about that question this week. Put that before you. I want to sit with that question. Lord, what's, what are, what's in, what are, is, is there a person, a possession, a purpose, or a pursuit in my life that takes precedence and priority over my relationship with Jesus Christ? And church, let's not be a people who make it difficult for others to turn to God. But let us also remember what's essential to faith. That is our full allegiance to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just as a, as a, as a non-Jewish Gentile, I just thank you. I read through this and I just, I get excited about just kind of this worst to first story. You know, I, I, I'm just thankful to be included and to be known as a child of God. To have not been a people, to now be the people. So I just praise you for that. And, Lord, we, we as, as your people, with, with Jesus Christ as the head, we don't want to get in other people's way of coming to you. We don't want to put religion and rules and requirements and obstacles and things down in front of them. We don't want to say to them, you got to look like me before you can look like Jesus. We want to clear the path to Christ. And we just want to encourage, we want to encourage one another about what faith is. Faith is allegiance to you, Jesus, as our King and to you alone. We give you our everything because you are our everything. And so we, we praise you and we worship you, Jesus, this morning. Pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.